In this week's episode, I chat to Susan about subcultures and how they end up influencing larger consumer trends over time. Are subcultures dead or have they just modernized along with media and our complex always-on lifestyles? Welcome to the podcast, Heroes of Futurism, with me, Jonathan Cherry. This podcast is about the future and how to create it, what opportunities exist, what ideas are worth thinking about, and how you can begin to design the future that you want. Let's start right now. Episode number nine. We're kind of getting into this now. Welcome, Susan. Thank you for having me again. It's (laughs) it's always a great pleasure. So we thought we'd start uh, talking today about trends. Mm -hmm. So obviously trends is something you do as part of your job. It's something I do as part of my job. Um, but what be, would be interesting is to not just talk about job-related trends, but just things in general that you are curious about, things that are happening in the world that you want to talk about during the podcast. Like you said that you were uh, quite interested in subcultures and what's happening with subcultures, so let's start there. Yeah, so um, I think I spoke to you a while back we were chatting about there was an exhibition in London that was about subcultures and how subcultures have helped shape trends um, up to this point um, and that the feeling was um, that subcultures are dying a death this is what this exhibition was about Um, and yeah I think you and I have been chatting about whether we found that true or not and I think at first I thought it was true Um, and then after researching a bit I think I just realized that the nature of subcultures are changing a and b um yeah well are subcultures just changing to cultures so let's let's start off by defining what you um, understand a subculture to be so in yeah, so in this exhibition, they were talking about subcultures being punk. I assume mm. it's, it was art subcultures or um, fashion subcultures. Mm-hmm. So what is a subculture? So when the first thing that comes to my mind when someone speaks about subculture is I think of grunge, and I think I remember being kind of fourteen at the time and being in high school and learning about Kurt Cobain, who in my mind was the godfather of grunge. And it was this kind of anti-trend. And I remember my parents kind of rolling their eyes thinking, you know, we also had, you know, this kind of anti-establishment when we were young and it repeats. And I just felt that no one understood me. and, And I just really bought into what grunge was at the time, not understanding that it was a subculture, but with time Mm. now, um, retrospectively, I can see that it was a subculture. And I guess what it was that in a time when I was struggling to have a voice, I was 14, you know, um, no one really listened back then to 14 year olds. Um, I was able to identify with a group of people that weren't my actual culture, but we united on a common cause, which was not being understood and listening to a certain type of music and dressing in a certain way. Although at the time, we didn't think we were dressing in a certain way. We thought we were were rebelling against what everyone else was wearing. But in the now, obviously, retrospectively, mm. you can see, oh my gosh, I bought into the ideology hook, line and sinker. 
So, I mean, your parents were right. These yeah. things do repeat themselves. <laughs> and I think I also bought into grunge, mm. so much so that I ended up going to Seattle to, <laughs> want, you know, I wanted to live in Seattle. Yeah. So I went to where grunge was founded. And it was interesting because at the end of the 80s, which was all about hyper-consumerism, grunge was... Um, the breaking of the rules of consumerism, which was saying sort of screw you, we're not going to go to university and go and get like a standard job or even in our, in our music, we're going to break all of the rules mm. as to how rock music should be produced. Um, and I guess, as you say, there was um, a huge, there, were, there was a lot of change at that time. 1989, it was the fall of the Berlin Wall, apartheid ended in South Africa, it was the world was going through that transition. And mm. I guess a lot of young people, as you say, bought into it, um, which has always been the case. But it feels like that cycle is back again. Uh, sure. And I think that that cycle, what that cycle represented for Gen X, which was the kind of youth at the time, uh, where they were disillusioned by government and by pol politics and they felt lied to, you know. So this was an anti-establishment uh, trend, although mm. at the time we didn't want to believe it was a trend. Yeah. We wanted to believe it was an anti-trend. Mm. Yeah. Um, and in some sense it was because... Yeah, look, I've got to be very careful what I say because grunge became a huge industry. Yeah. Nirvana, uh, Kurt Cobain. I Changed mean, he the would, way music was produced. Right, and Nirvana made a lot of money and everything that flowed from Nirvana. I mean, now you can buy a Nirvana T-shirt in H&M. So, and I remember back then in South Africa, and obviously our context and our landscape is South Africa, um, and growing up in South Africa and Cape Town specifically for both of us, back then you could there was no licensed product. The government would not allow licensed product into South Africa. Mm. You might be able to at some fringe stores like Sgt. Pepper's or through... Um, like Musica at the time, you might be able to buy some paraphernalia, but the government was, uh, you know, owned kind of the media and owned what we were allowed to consume still yeah. only up until 1994, 95, where we actually yeah. freed from, uh, you know, a national nationalist government um, kind of ruling on, on media. So if you could get something, it meant that you knew someone that was going overseas or had been overseas. And I think that for me, that was part of it. My father went to Germany on a work trip and I remember giving him all my savings. And the only thing I wanted was Doc Martens and I wanted Airways mm. specifically. I didn't want the things that said Doc Martin because you could buy that here. I needed you know, I wanted to show my individuality. Mm. And I think not everyone has that. Not everyone strives to show individuality. But definitely for me, um, and maybe part of my subculture, um, is that I've always wanted to have something different, to be a little bit different and not be... I wanted to... So it's actually a bit of a... And to this is what I'm even saying is part of me wants to control the way that people see me and perceive me and how they how I communicate. But then another part of me also hates the fact that someone might even think that they know me or can put me in a box. Mm. And I think that's why I strive to be individual is because I don't want people to put me in a box. I want them to remain curious about me. I want to excite them when they think they know me and then they don't know me, right? Yeah. 
But maybe that is what this exhibition that you started this conversation talking about, uh, maybe that's what they are saying, is that in the grunge era, you bought into grunge mm. and you adopted the grunge uniform. Mm. So in a way, it was very defined. If you were in that um, subculture, mm. you had the Doc Martens, you wore black, mm. um, you shopped at Sgt. Pepper's, you had a trench coat. Mm. It was mm. That was the uniform of the disenfranchised youth. And today, it's quite difficult to define um, somebody as be- belonging to a certain subculture. So let's talk about hipsters. Right. Right, Because that's a definite subculture. Yeah. Yeah. But is there a hipster uniform? I mean... I mean, an oversized vintage Jacquard jersey and like like those dad sneakers, which have now become so popular. Mm. But is it a brand? So can you, you know, like we were chatting the other day... Um, in the early 2000s, Kangol was a huge brand for the hip-hop revolution. Well, I think for hipster, it's about not having brands. Okay. So it's about finding these thrift mm. store gems. Mm. Um, but if you go to places where hipsters frequent, mm. they all look the same. As much as they want to be anti-fashion and anti-establishment. and So then maybe they're not, they don't buy fashion brands, but there are brands like, Power and the glory and yeah, lifestyle brand. I need to be a vegan or I need to, you know, take public transport. In mm. a way, that is a brand. Mm. And um, nostalgia. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I guess maybe the, the thing here is that there is uh, a destruction of subcultures from the perspective of commercialization. So it's difficult. I don't know if it's a destruction or a deconstruction. Mm. So they're rebuilding it. Yeah, You know, so they, they deconstructing and reconstructing at the same time, mm. which ultimately I think every subculture aims to do. Yeah. They yeah. want to form their own new identity and you form right. your own, I formed my own identity by destruct, like deconstructing mm. what had been formed for me yeah. and rebelling against that without maybe thinking that I was rebelling. It was a consciousness about, well, I actually don't buy into that just because you say so. Mm. Yeah. All right. So I, um, I guess the, the, that's, that's one side of things like society is shifting quite radically Mm. in, in that aspect. Um, for me, the big thing with, subcultures is that it's just so much more complex than it used to be. Sure. I guess because nowadays, um, you know, there, there's not just grunge, there's a million little movements that you can take part in. Mm. Uh, and you can not, you don't necessarily have to just subscribe to the one ideology. You can blend them. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, what's interesting. It's not now. as prescriptive or exclusive as it was in the past. Right. Like if you were, if you enjoyed listening to Nirvana and you were a Kurt Cobain fan and you considered yourself to be part of the grunge movement, mm. you would not listen to music outside of those boundaries. Yeah. And if you did, you probably wouldn't tell anyone. Mm. It, was, it was very prescriptive, where I don't think it's as prescriptive, which is really freeing. Yeah. And I guess that's, uh, that's the exciting thing of now, is that you can be a vegan and at the same time, I don't know, work at Investec. It's... Uh, For sure. So you're part of the problem and you're trying to solve it at the same time. It's like, well, go figure. 
Um, so yeah, I just think that that's that's the interesting thing about today is that people can just dip in and out of um, subcultures as they see fit without and, having to commit. Yeah, no one's really going to judge you. Yeah, and that's inclusivity. I think it's just something that our generation maybe didn't have. Mm. Yeah. Or maybe uh, our generation in South Africa didn't seem to have. Yeah, because I think it was just a simpler time. We had very uh, prescriptive media. Mm. Um, you know, everyone watched Night Rider at 8 o'clock. <laughs> or what was it? 7 o'clock on a Monday mm. night. That was that was what you did. Nowadays, uh, this it, the amount of variety and choice is just overwhelming. So, so if we have to consider the mass demographic of South Africa. Yeah. Do we think that they are, because we are talking totally from our worldview, which is, you know. Very niched. Very niched, mm. very Cape Town, like Cape Town centric, yeah. uh, you know. Um, do we think that the mass, well, we don't know, I mean. No, look, in my, um, again, South Africa is very diverse. I think there are interesting things happening all over the place. If you go to Johannesburg and just spend time in, certain areas of Johannesburg, you see things there that you cannot even imagine sitting Completely, in Cape Town. So yeah. it's like an abs it's a different world. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the value, as we always say, about going and, going and exploring and yeah. walking a neighborhood and chatting to interesting people, is that there is just such wild diversity happening. I mean, when was it then? Like a year ago, we were looking at something like motorcycle gangs and uh, people that were into heavy metal in Ghana. It was yeah, like the most, and Botswana, yeah. <laughs> it was like the most radical totally. idea. Um, so I think that's the thing is that even in South Africa, there's just so many different types of people doing so many interesting things. Um, that it, it's very difficult to kind of make those assumptions <laughs> sitting in Tumbo's Cliff in Cape Sure. Yeah. I guess that is the one thing that makes me really grateful to be living in South Africa. And, uh, yeah, for now, let's call Cape Town South Africa. <laughs> but um, is that we have got so many influences. And I think, you know, sometimes one could think that it might be easier somewhere else, but at least we know we have got diversity and we've got people from all over the world living, or at least all over Africa, living in one country, one city, mm. um, many cities in South Africa, right? So, so we have this uh, constant, these like trends constantly coming in and new trends emerging that are so specific to South Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, that you wouldn't see anywhere else. And I think it's something that does excite me, and I hope we can tackle it in a future podcast, which is just, you know, what are our own trends rather than constantly buying into European trends or what Zara dictates? And I've written a, um, a post on LinkedIn about this, you know, how we buy our heritage back. Mm. Whereas in Denmark, they don't buy their heritage back. They make their... They make their design aesthetic for themselves. America mm. makes and manufactures for themselves. Well, technically China manufactures for America, but they buy into their own trends. Yeah. Abercrombie is still in business, even though what they produce is not fashionable, mm. but they're making for their own cultures yeah. and subcultures. Whereas I think that's the one huge opportunity that is uh, 
South Africa developing and Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, Africa developing their own trends that mm. are right for them, yeah. regardless of what the rest of the world is doing. Yeah. And look, I'm not in, uh, I'm not looking at pop culture trends like you are. Mm. Um, but I don't know, for some reason, I get a real sense that there is an interesting shift happening in South Africa. And I'd, this is going to sound ridiculous. And I know that all of the academics listening to this podcast are going to roll their eyes now. But I get a real um, sense that when things like Rugby World Cups come around, in, as South Africans, all of a sudden we remember, oh, yeah, we've got a national anthem and we've got a flag mm. and we're on the world stage. Um, sorry, that's just the, <laughs> that's just the alarm. Uh, I, I don't know. I get a sense that people have a certain level of optimism when these things come around every mm. four years. It's like, yes, you know, like our team is diverse and... You know, they might not win the, the World Cup, but we're proud of them to be on the um, on the stage. And I think another example of that recently is this um, choir from Limpopo that did so well in America's Got Talent. Mm. And I think people are desperate for some good news. But at the same time, I really get a sense that we're proud of our difference in the world and that we are creative and we've got something to offer. We've got uh, a uniqueness which only happens here. And I think that more and more those stories are carrying more and more weight because they've always been there. But I think because we're so desperate for some good news, mm. we get excited and I think it inspires people. I think also we've got a natural protest in us mm. Africans South Africans, and recently we also all protested against gender-based violence, which was sad to see that so many people have experienced this enough so that they want to fight for it. Yeah. But seeing us all march against a cause, mm. so I think that it's taking the Rugby World Cup, which probably very few, 5 10% of people are even you know, watching that, it's on very expensive media. But if we have to look at the response of how South Africans united mm. against a brand or in a brand, and that brand was Am I Next, like that was just an amazing mm. um, brand to be part of, an amazing movement and energy to be part of, and that the government has has taken our concerns and, and uh, is discussing them on, on how to, you know, whether or not, I'm not going to comment on the mm. outcome mm. of government, but the fact that enough people decided to unite on a common cause. But funnily enough, do you know where that came from? Uh, in my mind, that um, inclusive protest action came about when we were also pissed off with Jacob Zuma. Yeah. Then everyone, including my mother, went, <laughs> not that it's her first time, but <laughs> went onto the street with banners. Mm. And, you know, everyone's mother was on the street saying that Zuma must go and all that kind of stuff. And I remember as a child, I was never involved in active protests mm. um, during apartheid South Africa. Yeah. Um, but looking at how my sisters are raising their daughters and their children, and my nieces are on the street with banners. They are protesting. They are exercising their voice yeah. um, as citizens. And that uh, makes me super proud. Yeah. And if we go back further, I think it also stems from that um, those that protest action that we saw uh, against Jacob Zuma when those young women stood up mm. when he was making a, a presentation with banners recognizing Kwesi. Like that again, mm. uh, the Fees Must Fall campaign, sure. as violent as it was, 
we suddenly remembered, oh, yeah, we can also, like, get pissed off and um, say that this is not what we want and get out there. And I think, ironically, is that, yes, when we were younger, it was dangerous to protest because it was highly political and it wasn't, it didn't, I don't know, I'll speak for myself, but it didn't necessarily feel like our fight. But now it is actually... It's always been our fight, and now it's okay that everyone gets involved. We are free enough yeah, exactly. to, to unite. We can now participate and feel um, that we want to make a difference and say something. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's useful. Maybe that's one of our uh, subcultures that's developing in South Africa. Absolutely, and I think we're just getting more confidence about that, and I mm. think that's a good thing. Uh, because uh, on Friday there was the um, climate crisis um, protests where, again, it was kids, it was students, it was school children who came out and protested about the climate. And, yeah, there is no more a monopoly on protests thanks to politics. Mm. It's now become everyone's fight. So there's almost a democratization of protest, which mm. I think is a good thing. And I think that's a trend in South Africa that I I, I think is fantastic. Uh, what did I want to say? It This whole thing with dance in South Africa. Mm. Um, I don't know if you know, but there's, especially in the Cape, the Western Cape and the Northern Cape, there's uh, a dance style called real dance. I don't know yeah. if you know about it. But it's like a very ancient form of tribal dance, um, tribal um communication and I think it's one of those things that uh, almost went extinct but I think thanks to the efforts of people like David Kramer and other people in the arts mm, movement mm. that now is becoming more and more popular and there's almost like a revival of young children learning how to do this real dance which is a very <laughs> you know it's a very South African thing mm. uh, but they're big tournaments and I think they have tournaments at Grand West Stadium and it's it's like a real thing and I think that's so fantastic because what you're kind of saying to people is that you know your culture matters uh, the way that you see the world and how you interact with the world is important. And I think we can celebrate that and put you on a stage and potentially you can go and participate in America's Got Talent. Sure. And I think that is absolutely fantastic because I think as South Africans, we often compare ourselves to the rest of the world and go, well, you know, I don't sing hip hop as well as... Um, you know, the big artists in the United States, mm. but we do other stuff. Absolutely. Like, differently. And celebrating what's real for us. Yeah. And I think it's just building up that confidence and that takes time. But I get a sense that that's starting to happen mm. in this country, is that people are starting to be a little bit more confident um, and being proud of who they are and what they have, which I think is great. Um, yeah, speaking of which... Uh, the other trend which I think is fascinating is the development of things that are happening in Hong Kong. Mm. So I know it's completely different to what we've been talking about, but it's so interesting to see how a movement that went from a peaceful protest about yeah. one specific thing is just evolving into something where it's becoming more violent. Like our fees must fall. Mm. So it's becoming more violent. The other thing that I think is really interesting is that 
in South Africa, talking about culture, a lot of the transition from apartheid to democratic South Africa happened thanks to the fact that we had protest songs. There was protest mm. uh, drama, protest theater, protest literature. So a lot of the shift that happened in South Africa was as a result of the arts. And I don't think a lot of people know that. Um, but there's a very good movie that's quite old now called... Um, I forget the name now, but it's uh, the subtitle is A Revolution in Four-Part Harmony. I'll get the, I must just find out the, the proper title. Mm. But it's about the songs of the apartheid struggle. Oh, wow. And actually how songs from Miriam Makeba and um, uh, a lot of the other artists, Abdullah Ibrahim at the time, um, those songs really fired people up. They fired up the imagination. Mm. They gave people a visualization of what South Africa could be. Mm. And what I found so interesting is in Hong Kong, they now have an anthem uh, which people rally around. And it wasn't an anthem that someone officially said, right, this is the song of the revolution, but people have started to adopt this song. And you know that shit's going to get real when people have a song. <laughs> so they have a song, they have a flag, now it's going to get real. Mm. And that, for me, was a real turning point in that uh, protest, is that when they announced that there was this anthem. Because that really fires people up. Mm. Um, and when I thought about that, I also thought, sure, when you're at school, you have a school song. Uh, and it really unites people. You know, you've got sure. a uniform and you've got a song and you get behind this thing. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I don't know, just for some reason, I think that song and that, like the arts is so powerful. And in South Africa, it's something which we've used as a weapon to for change. Sure. And in some sense, I feel like we might have forgotten that. So, I and I think it's one of our key strengths is that if you really want to have change, you've got to start bringing art and philosophy into it. Um, and as soon as you see that starting to manifest, you know, you're, there's stuff happening here. Change. Yeah. So, yeah, just something interesting on that point. To end off with. Yeah, oh, yeah we might as well end. Okay. <laughs> All right, interesting discussion as always. Kind of feel we went off topic, but... Um, as usual. As usual. But it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, till next time. Thanks, guys. for listening to Heroes of Futurism. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing and we'll see you next time. Cheers.